us is a continuation, but for others, they are joining us for the first time, and not for the first time in this portfolio committee, but for the first time today. <clears throat> I welcome you all once more, and therefore would like to check, Ms. Machalamba will just indicate for me, it was I saw in the program of parliament that this meeting is like a continuation of the meeting that we started in the morning. Uh, it is recorded as such. So you will guide me if you don't need to do another attendance uh, check now. What is the, what is the situation, Ms. Machalan? Good afternoon, Chair. Uh, we can only do the attendance register of those members who have only joined now. Who are not part of the morning session. Yes, are you able to do that? Yes, Chair. Uh, the member who has joined is Ms. Ms. Kwahube and Ms. Chirwa. Thank you, Chair. Okay. Yes, they, they did log in in the previous meeting, but we did not recognize them at that time. Uh, honorable members, uh, I welcome you also. All of you have logged into this virtual meeting. Let me just indicate that all portfolio committee meetings, including ours, are open to public and therefore anyone will be allowed to be in these meetings uh, and access them either virtual or physical. The only thing that is there is that only members of the portfolio committee and those who are presenting to us will then uh, interact uh, through this platform. But before I proceed, I would like to remind you that this virtual meeting is deemed to be in the precinct of the parliament and therefore constitutes a meeting of the portfolio committee of the National Assembly for official purposes only. In addition to the rules of virtual sittings, the rules of the National Assembly, including the rules of debate apply. Members enjoy the same powers and privileges that apply in a sitting of a National Assembly. Members should equally note that anything said in the virtual platform is deemed to have been said in the house and may be ruled upon. All members who have logged in shall be considered to be present and are requested to mute their microphones and only unmute when recognized to speak. This is because the microphones are very sensitive and will pick up any noise which might disturb the attention of the other members. When recognized to speak, please unmute your microphone and connect your video. Members may make use of the icons in the bar at the bottom of the, of the screens, which is an option that allows a member to put up his or her hand to raise points uh, of order. The secretary will assist in alerting the chairperson to members requesting to speak. When using the virtual system, members are urged to refrain from or desist from unnecessary point of order or interjections. We shall now present, proceed with the business of the day. And at this moment, we welcome uh, the leadership of, uh, of SAPRA. And uh, we will then give it to either the chair or CEO, whoever is leading the delegation, to interact with us. They are coming in to make a presentation on updating us on the COVID-19 vaccines, how they are processing it, where are they with that. But number two, uh, an update on the ivermectin uh, uh, health product that is also within that domain. I now give this space. Oh, uh, honorable members, uh, 
please read what I've written on our chat group that pertains to uh, something that will happen next week. Thank you very much. Can I then request uh, Sapra to uh, uh, introduce their leaders and then start the presentations? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Chairperson and Honourable Members. And thank you for this opportunity to um, continue our feedback to the Parliamentary Portfolio Committee on Health. Um, and obviously, although we'll present on certain items, we're very open and willing to answer any other questions that, that, that you might have. Um, I'm going to immediately introduce uh, Dr. Tumi Sumeti, who is the CEO of SAPRA, who will be making the first presentation. Uh, Dr. Sumeti, would you like to introduce yourself and introduce the... Good uh, afternoon, members, um, and um, thank you for having us um, today. My name is uh, Tumi Sumeta, and I'm the CEO of SAPRA. Joined um, the colleagues from SAPRA that have joined us um, this afternoon. We have um, on the list our Chief Regulatory Officer, Ms. Poshan Gambule. We also have our CFO, um, Mr. Rahat Khos. We have our COO, Ms. Kristalna Reinecke. We have our Executive for HR, Mr. Gordon Takati. We have our Board Secretary, um, Mr. Pitan Totso. And we have some of our technical uh, senior managers, Mr. Dion Puvan, Ms. Silverani Padayachi, and Mr. Totlang Sifaho. We may, um, uh, Chair, also have some board, uh, some of our board members, I'm just checking on the list, um, that may have joined us. Um, Ms. Man Mandisa Hela, I'm not sure I can't see her, as well as Mr. Shabi Banu, who are board members. I'll just check on the list. Thank you. Before you proceed, uh, Dr. Dumi Semente, uh, let me just uh, make this other announcement. Honorable members, our program is actually going live in some uh, TV platforms. May I request that at the time of your presentation, when you actually not only unmute yourself to speak, but uh, put on your video, if you can, uh, we'll understand if we have got a challenge of connectivity as you might pick it up in the area where you are. But try, if you can, switch on your video at the time you are presenting or asking a question or replying to a question. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Should I start with the presentation? Yes, go ahead, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. I've got my screen up and I'll speak to it. Again, um, just to thank um, the members for the invitation for us to present. Um, I will briefly take you through the COVID-19 vaccine updates. I'll also talk you through the process um, that we follow to authorize these and I'll provide an update on ivermectin. Um, I thought I'll also, Chair, provide to you just at a global perspective um, in terms of some of the products um, that have received emergency use authorization by um, the World Health Organization. I thought we would reflect on that. So you will note that a number of these vaccines being the Pfizer-BioNTech, the AstraZeneca vaccine um, manufactured at different sites, 
the Janssen vaccine on the slide, um, have received emergency use authorization uh, by the WHO, and the dates are indicated um, on the slide. The Moderna vaccine is ongoing um, assessment. The data that I have is at, as at the 2nd of July. We also have Sinopharm that received its emergency use authorization from the WHO on the 7th of May, as well as Sinovac that has received authorization on the 1st of June. What I wanted to highlight, Chair, is that there are a number of other vaccines that are in evaluation. Some are not even reflected here as they're still under clinical trial studies. We have about 200 or so um, vaccines across the world that are at various stages of clinical development. But in terms of what has been shared with the WHO and is at different stages of evaluation, includes um, the Russian Sputnik V vaccine. Um, it also includes Novavax that some of you may have heard about, the Barrett uh, Biotech Indium, and there's quite a number, the list uh, continues. So there's about in total 21 vaccines that um, are currently under um, review or where the WHO has made a decision on their status. And as a regulator, we keep an, an eye on the developments uh, of these vaccines. From our perspective, um, Chair, we've engaged with a number of companies. What we have provided um, as a mechanism to um, fast track applications, but also to ensure that the quality of applications that we receive is, is, is um, quite strong. We have what we call pre-submission meetings. So these are meetings that we have with the applicants before they can submit their application to us. We take them through what our regulatory requirements are. We've been having these meetings since um, 2020, um, as, as late as uh, November um, 2020, and these meetings um, continue. Um, the outcome of some of these meetings is that some of the applicants have already submitted their applications. And we met with, um, at the time, J&J, uh, &J, we met with AstraZeneca, we met with Pfizer. Um, early this year, we met with um, uh, two companies that um, had intended to make a submission for the Sputnik V um, vaccine. They have subsequently made the submission. We, in February, had met with Curanto Farm that we've just recently authorized. That's when we engaged with them on their submission and we took them through our requirements. And also there's a number of other um, companies. The second slide also continues on that to show you that we've met a range of companies um, and, and they were presenting a range of um, vaccines that they want us to um, consider once they applied. Um, a company called Vaccinity, for example, where they were um, uh, sharing with us some of their data for a multi-epitope peptide-based uh, vaccine. Um, we had met also with other companies that are looking to still bring in um, the same products um, that are either currently under evaluation, like the Sinovac uh, uh, um, application, as well as Sinopharm. We've had uh, a meeting in December with uh, Moderna through um, a possible local applicant, wherein they um, have indicated an intention to submit. However, they have not. And these meetings continue to take place. 
As we uh, speak today, Chair, we've got um, the following products being authorized. It is the AstraZeneca that was authorized under Section 21. It is the Pfizer-BioNTech that was authorized also under Section 21. And we have the Janssen J&J uh, vaccine that has conditional market authorization. We also have the Sinovac CoronaVac um, vaccine that was recently authorized. Now, the time frame that it takes, and as we've indicated, we've expedited our processes. Um, and on average, depending on the quality of the submission, depending on the information that's available at the time, it would take us about 90 working days or so to finalize these because we've expedited our processes for all COVID-related products. But there's still a bit of back and forth that takes place between us and the applicant. And um, while we've got those timeframes indicated, we only make a decision when we are satisfied. So sometimes the timeframes um, longer than what we've stipulated because we are still in these engagements. Sometimes they may be within those timeframes. Again, it depends on the quality of the submission and the information that is made available to us. We're currently reviewing two um, uh, uh, vaccines, being the Sputnik V. Uh, there's two applicants um, for that one that's in review, as well as Sinopharm, and there's two applicants for that one also. So those are in review. Um, in terms of the process that we then applied to make those decisions that I just indicated earlier, I'd just like to briefly take us through that. Very important is uh, we um, assess the applicant. It is important that the applicant is licensed by SAPRA because um, a licensed applicant knows what they need to comply with in terms of the regulatory requirements. They know that there's an expectation that we have on them to have um, capacity to implement post-market surveillance. So they must have capacity to assess the product as it's being made available in the country. They must have capacity to also assess the safety and monitor um, the safety of the product. So they put together what we call a risk management plan that they must um, implement. And there's various other elements that they need to comply with. So once we've assessed the applicant, we then assess the place where the product is being uh, manufactured or produced. We look at does the site comply with good manufacturing practices? And there's a whole guidance and we all across the world as regulators comply with these international um, guiding principles. Um, and we look at the good manufacturing um, practice. We're also able to rely on um, reports from other regulators that are part of this global um, network that complies to these um, uh, uh, principles. And we can then, while we are not always able to send our inspectors like now under lockdown, uh, we can rely on the reports from those um, facilities. I just want to do a bit of a deep dive on, on, on this one where we look at the facility because it's a key one, particularly because the vaccines that are being made available in South Africa are imported. So it's important that for us, we look at the site where these vaccines are, are being manufactured. So that pertains to the drug substance, so the active in this product, as well as then the final drug, um, drug product. And we look at how it's, it's packaged and all the testing that is done to ensure that the product is a quality um, product. So these are very key aspects that we look at under step number two. 
We then follow what is step number three. Here we look at the production process itself. We look at how was the drug substance, so that is the active and the final product, how were they manufactured? We look at all the controls they have around them, that manufacturing process. Were these characterized across the manufacturing uh, process? Where there are any impurities, are they controlled? Are they, um, do they meet the limits uh, that have been stipulated um, as part of the uh, manufacturing process? Uh, how, do they, how do they validate their manufacturing um, process? And is all of this traceable? So this is a very critical um, step. And um, I'll refer to this uh, step number three later on because we do come back to this uh, when the product arrives um, in the country as we do our assessment. Step four, um, we then look at, so now we've looked at the applicant, we've looked at where the product is manufactured and the process of manufacturing. We then look at now when the product is then being tested. It does get tested initially in what we call preclinical studies. So this is where animals are being utilized, um, typically small animals, or it could be utilized in animal models. But we look at the data in terms of the toxicity and the safety of the product at a preclinical level. And when we're satisfied with that, we then move and we then look at the safety, efficacy, as well as the quality. So under this step five, we look at the clinical studies. So this is where we look at all of, <clears throat> all of the data from phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials. These trials don't have to be conducted in South Africa. It can be trials conducted elsewhere in the world. And because there are, as regulators, we're complying with these good um, uh, uh, harmonized processes with these harmonized uh, uh, standardized processes, we're able to then uh, 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 apply um, and review data from studies conducted in other countries. Um, so we would look at, <clears throat> from a phase one perspective, we look at the safety um, of the uh, product. Um, phase two would look at the safety as well as start to look at the efficacy so we would look at that evidence of um, uh, efficacy and safety in a phase two study. And then we'd also look at um, efficacy in phase three, which are typically the largest studies. So, I mean, on average, a phase three study, you would have about between 10,000 to about 15,000 participants, depending on the design of the study and depending on what we call the endpoint. So what do you eventually want to demonstrate with this product? So we look at all of that. I must state that for all these vaccines that are authorized across the world, none of them have got a, a full market authorization. You will note that they all have a either emergency use authorization or emergency use listing or conditional market authorization because there's still a lot of data that is being um, conducted and, and collected by the manufacturers as these products um, are being rolled out in the different countries. And that is indeed the case um, in South Africa. Very important also here, we also take into account while we look at the safety and the efficacy, what um, has the applicant included in what we call their risk management plan? You know, do they have a clear mechanism on how they will assess the side effects? Do they have a clear mechanism of how they will um, determine and also uh, uh, work with us as a regulator and the government to ensure that we uh, um, 
take, um, we assess the, the safety of these vaccines. So we, I mean, with each of these modules, um, there's volumes of data um, that, that we're going through. And we have experts that look at these. We've got experts that would just look at the, um, uh, uh, the manufacturing process. And this would typically be chemists, et cetera. We would have experts that would look at the preclinical data. We would have experts that would be, you know, clinicians and virologists that would look at the um, efficacy data. So on average, we have a team of close to 20 to 25 individuals, including our internal staff, that would be assessing um, these volumes of data that we are reviewing. So now we're done with step five, we then move to step six. So, you know, the, the product and the applicant takes all of these boxes, we're satisfied. We then, um, we would determine the schedule of the product. We would indicate how the, um, what we call the uh, uh, patient information leaflet or, or the uh, product information, what information should be contained in there in terms of the side effects that should be listed in there, any contraindications, et cetera, and we're then um, authorized or we make a decision. Through the Medicines and Related Substances Act, there is a, a, a mechanism wherein if the applicant is not satisfied, and this is under step number seven, wherein if the applicant is not satisfied with the outcome of the decision of the regulator, they can appeal that with the CEO. And uh, we would deliberate, uh, look at all the information that uh, uh, the applicant presents as its evidence. And if they're still not satisfied with the outcome of that appeal by the CEO, they can then appeal, again, um, this decision of the authority through the Minister of Health, who then puts together an appeals committee um, uh, nominated both by the regulator as well as by the applicant to deliberate on this matter. So there is recourse within the act wherein if the applicant is aggrieved, there's a mechanism to address that. And then lastly, there is quite important two elements. The first is what we call, and I made reference to this earlier, um, uh, lot release. So because these vaccines are not manufactured in the country, uh, when they arrive in the country, we take samples from these uh, lots or these batches and we assess them. Remember I had mentioned that when we look at step number three, we look at the production process, how these are, um, the manufacturing process, we look at the excipients, we look at the validation tests and all the quality control elements. When the vaccines arrive in the country, we then test that, has that been complied to? So it's important that we ensure that what we've authorized is exactly the same as what then arrives in the country. And that's the lot release uh, uh, process that a number of you may have um, heard about. So we conduct that. And once we're satisfied, we then say, yes, this product can then be made available to the public. And while it's being made available, we also continue to play a role as a regulator. We would then monitor the safety of these um, vaccines and I'll speak to you in the next slides in terms of some of the data we've already received as we monitor the safety of these vaccines. So we monitor what we call um, adverse events following immunization, as well as adverse events of special interest. And uh, we would get these what we call individual case reports. So we have in place what we call the MAT Safety App, 
Um, it's an app. We also have it available on our website and there is a paper-based form um, available for those who do not have access to these tools. So to date, as of the 7th of, of um, uh, July and um, by Friday, we will be uh, publishing a, a, a report on this. Um, we had received about 1,494 or so um, uh, uh, safety reports and um, 564 of those were for the Cominati, so this is for the Pfizer vaccine, and about 930 were for the J&J vaccine. Again, we do consider at this point how many um, individuals have been uh, vaccinated. So this is data as, as, as at the 7th of um, July. Um, in total, so one individual can report one or more than one um, um, adverse events. So in total, there's been about 3,730 adverse um, events following immunization that have been reported. And we then um, analyze that against these two vaccines that have been rolled out in the country. There's also been uh, those that are reported for events of special interest. We have had some fatalities and there's causality studies that are currently ongoing. And what are causality studies to say, we need to determine if the event that we saw is indeed related to the vaccine or related to something else. So these are very comprehensive um, uh, studies that would be uh, conducted. So autopsies will be done, um, you know, a history of the individual in terms of what other medication they were taking. It's quite an extensive process that is then being conducted. But while the process is being done, we do note, um, you know, these fatalities and we will then uh, monitor. But what we can say is that these fatalities um, do not at this point outnumber what you would see um, generally um, in, in the public. But be that as it may, we are doing the um, causality assessment. So I'm not going to go into too much detail on this, but this is the range of um, you know, side effects, side, side events that have been reported, those of special interest for the Pfizer vaccine, Cominati. Um, there has been some interest, for example, again, around valves, uh, uh, parsley. Uh, we have looked into that. That's another one where we're doing a causality um, assessment on that. Uh, there have been reports around myocarditis. We are looking at that. I've indicated that we're looking into the deaths. Uh, we are also seeing what we call breakthrough infections, and we are analyzing those and following up um, on those individuals. So it's a range that we are uh, looking into. Similarly, for the J&J vaccine, we are looking um, at those and continuously doing then the causality um, reports for those that are serious uh, events or those of special interest. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. And uh, when I'm done with this part of the presentation, we're happy to take questions on the vaccines and we've got our colleagues to also assist. <clears throat> so just to now go to the last part of the presentation where we talk to Ivermectin. Um, so we have come um, before to Parliament and where we shared, I think this was earlier there, where we shared um, an update on Ivermectin. We gave a rationale on uh, why is there such an interest on Ivermectin, why um, specifically so much interest in South Africa. And we had mentioned at the time that because we don't have this active registered for human use, it therefore cannot be utilized off-label, like what we're seeing in other countries. And when it's used off-label, it means that the medical practitioner takes full 
responsibility and accountability. Um, it's not, uh, you know, the regulator in that case, because it's not registered for that specific indication, does not get involved. And because in South Africa, we do not, we at the time, and it still is the case, that we don't have this specific formulation registered for human use. Hence, um, you know, we, we, we've had to put in place various mechanisms. So there's been a number of trials that we're ongoing um, across the world that we also are monitoring. Um, the current evidence um, uh, 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 indicates uh, a number of small studies uh, that have different types of designs, and those studies have uh, uh, weaknesses, and even the authors of some of these studies have indicated that in the conclusions of their own studies, and we make reference to some of these. Um, there's also been then on the back of that um, systematic reviews as well as meta-analysis of these studies, but the meta-analysis has become, you know, proven to be challenging because, um, you know, these clinical studies don't always have the uh, 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 same endpoints. They don't always have the same comparators. So, you know, are they comparing against another uh, treatment option for COVID-19? Are they comparing against placebo, et cetera? And these are important uh, design elements when it comes to a clinical trial so that you can be able to use the data to conclude. Um, so we continue to monitor these um, uh, uh, studies. So the current uh, findings um, is that um, you know, even with the evidence from all these pooled studies, it is still inconclusive whether ivermectin uh, does uh, provide the clinical benefit um, or not. So it's still very much in this clinical equipoise. Um, the most recent studies, there's one from Colombia, wherein um, there was no statistical um, uh, significant difference between individuals that were put on ivermectin and those on placebo. Um, in terms of the severity of the disease and hospitalization. There's also a recent um, article, uh, some of you may have seen that had to be retracted because um, you know, of the, again, how they um, designed the study on how they reported on, 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 on the um, um, studies. And so in that article was claiming that ivermectin uh, does have clinical benefit, but when it was reviewed in detail, it was found to have many errors and that article has subsequently been uh, withdrawn. So, I mean, we continue to monitor, um, you know, all publications and all um, positions by the various regulatory um, and, and, and health authorities. Um, so as we said, there is no evidence that shows the clinical benefit um, and uh, our position remains to be that it should be used under controlled uh, mechanism and one of the control mechanisms is either through a randomized clinical trial wherein it's been evaluated. The other control mechanism that we make reference to is what we have put in place um, in terms of the compassionate uh, use program, which I'll talk to in the next slide. Um, there's also been an update uh, in terms of a recommendation from the National Essential uh, Medicines List Committee um, as recent as June this year, where again, they indicate that there's insufficient evidence to recommend ivermectin for the um, uh, management or treatment of COVID-19 and that it should be used um, in, in, in clinical trials or in a controlled uh, clinical trial. As I've indicated, uh, to again align with the uh, approach of utilizing it under con uh, a controlled 
a manner where you are monitoring and you're able to see how the individuals are, are faring while they're on the product. We then have this Section 21 Controlled um, Compassionate Use Program. This is a program that we implemented since January of this year. It was at the time that we were in the um, second wave and um, we uh, uh, communicated this quite extensively to um, you know, the, the public and the health um, sector. And what this program enables was at the time, I mean, there was a lot of illicit use of the product. There was um, illegal product coming into the country. Some of it when studies were done to see what was actually contained in those formulations, they did not even have ivermectin in there, it was other products. Um, and so we needed to ensure that wherein it is used in this controlled mechanism, we do have authorized companies that can bring it in. And so as we sit, we've got eight companies that have been authorized to bring in the product. There's about 269 healthcare facilities that have applied and have been um, uh, authorized to, to hold stock of this product and 335 named patients. So this is when the medical practitioner applies to SAPRA to say, for this specific individual, I would like to um, utilize ivermectin. Then these are the symptoms that they're presenting with and I will monitor them. We have rejected some applications and the bulk of it is because they were bringing in product that is either not manufactured in um, facilities that are not compliant. And again, the safety of the public remains to be um, paramount for us. And that's why we can, and we do reject um, some of the um, applications. So as we, as, as we um, as, as of today, we do not have, um, uh, so let me just go back to the slide. The one point I wanted to make is what's concerning is while we've got this mechanism and there's a mechanism to report um, by the healthcare practitioners, we're not receiving as many reports as per these applications. And we'd really like to urge um, you know, the healthcare practitioners to report um, wherein they've got this authorization from us because we need to be able to collect as much data as we possibly can on the benefits or the harm of these of this product if there is harm. So you know we continue uh, uh, to monitor this, but the reporting is very, very poor at this point. We continue to um, uh, advise and support and encourage that clinical trials uh, you know, be considered um, in the country. We would expedite the review of such an application. But as we, um, uh, as we speak, there's no application for clinical trial to evaluate the efficacy of ivermectin against um, COVID-19. We also do not have an application for a product registration for ivermectin for the treatment of COVID-19. We did, however, receive an application that we've subsequently authorized for a topical formulation. So this was treating an inflammatory skin disease in adult um, patients, but that is a topical formulation. We have subsequently, and this is quite recent, received an application for ivermectin. This is a tablet formulation. It's not for indications of COVID-19, however, for tropical diseases. And this is currently um, under review. So that is the um, current status on ivermectin. So for us as a regulator, our position still remains that we you know, are in a position where we have this clinical equipoise. The Section 21 Compassionate Use Program is still in place. We continue to monitor uh, 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 the use of this product. And um, you know, even where it is being brought in illegally, our 
regulatory enforcement team is uh, working hard to ensure that we, we deal with those non-compliances as we become aware of those. Chair, I will pause here. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Doctor. Uh, honorable members, I have received uh, and they've made a list of those who would like to actually engage with the presentation. <clears throat> Let me read their names and then if you are left out, then you'll raise your name here in the platform. Uh, it's Honorable Chirwa, you'll be the first one, followed by Honorable Mashengwa. The third one, the Honorable Wilson. The fourth, Honorable Ismail. And the, the one I have is Honorable Dr. Timbequayo. Those are the five hands that I received at the end of, at the time the presentation was finished. May I take if there are any other names of other honorable members who would like to engage? Number six. Jacobs, Chair. Okay, Honorable Dr. Jacobs. Sokacha, Chair. Honorable Sokacha, you'll be number seven. Honorable Chirizumnyai. Nyai, you are number eight. Okay. Any other taker? Okay, honorable members, we follow one uh, after the other in that way. The first one, honorable Chirwa, followed by honorable Mashengwa, three, honorable Wilson, four, Ismail, five, Dr. Tembegwayo, six, Dr. Jacobs, seven, Onyai, uh, no, no, Sokacha, and the last one is Honorable Munyai. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you to Sapra for their presentation as well. Um, I just have three or so questions for Sapra um, in relation to their presentation today. Firstly, um, can you please appraise us in detail uh, about what the outstanding data from Sputnik in particular um, is as noted in the presentation. Um, also, in relation to efficacy, what data has SAPRA received from Sputnik applicants? And what data is outstanding that other vaccine manufacturers that are approved have submitted that Sputnik hasn't submitted? Um, I, I'm asking this question because the presentation, and I went over it um, quite a few times yesterday and today as well, just to check, but there is no precise detail on what this data is that is outstanding from, from some vaccine manufacturers. Um, so if you can just get into detail on what this data is. Uh, and, and, and number two, I want to, I know I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, uh, but uh, there's a case that we had dealt with with the Minister of Health. Well, not dealt with, but a case that was raised to the attention of the Minister of Health of a patient, Upindile Mube, Mube, sorry. Uh, who had a complication arising from the use of surgical mesh. Um, so, so in regards to such products, in particular the use of surgical mesh, uh, which has been flagged by the FDA in the past few years, uh, but is still in use in South Africa. Uh, I'm asking this because SAPRA has created, and even in this particular presentation, you've created the perception that FDA and other health regulators also have some kind of influence on your decisions. Um, so I want to know what the position of SAPRA is in regards to the use of surgical mesh. Um, also noting the fact that in 
Australia, they are doing free removals and corrective surgery for people who had surgical mesh inserted into their bodies, especially for hernia, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I want to ask about this particular thing because there's two people that I know of right now who are having complications. Apparently, it's a global thing when I did my own research. Um, but I find that in South Africa, it's still very much in use. So how then is the influence of, of other regulators in relation to surgical mesh not having an impact on SAPRA when they do have on the use of other manufacturers and other vaccine manufacturers for COVID-19. I just want clarity because I don't know what the what the position of SAPRA is in relation to surgical mesh. So I'm asking in that context as well. But also in relation to the fact that you have consistently created a perception that uh, you also monitor what other health regulators have to say. Um, but in this particular instance, that is not the case. So if you can just also clear the air on this particular thing. And lastly, um, because you say you monitor the adverse effects of all the vaccines that, uh, that are currently being rolled out in the SA, uh, can you just tell us what those effects are um, in, in numerical detail like and, and, and geographic detail as well, the severity, um, and which others are, are still being investigated, which investigations have been completed, and so on and so forth. I think this is important information so we know what exactly is happening. Um, in the country in relation to the vaccine rollout uh, campaign so that it does not fuel the already prevalent vaccine hesitancy that has been reported by the NDOH, um, contrary to what many of us quite believe because there are no vaccines, really. Um, but just appraise us on, on what these uh, adverse effects are, how many they are, where they are happening, the severity and all this, but in numerical detail as well. Thank you very much, Shepardson. Next. Uh, press Alabama, we can't hear you. Press unmute. Awagazwagali. <laughs> okay, Honorable Wilson, I'll come back to Mama Shengwa. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you to Sapra for the presentation. <clears throat> um, I, I think your, your presentation has, has covered a lot of my current concerns with regards to what's happening with vaccines. Um, and one of the present, one of the questions I have asked over the last couple of things was a percentage rate with regards to adverse reactions. And I'm glad we have some detail on that. We are obviously inundated with calls and messages and emails from the anti-vaxxer fraternity um, who, you know, who often use um, information that they've sourced from our beloved friend Google and, and, and other um, documents that are predominantly overseas-based and not particularly South African-based. Um, and it's always a very, very difficult one to deal with. Um, so being able to respond to that does help a little bit. Um, I am a little bit concerned about the, um, the adverse events, uh, adverse reactions to 
um, vaccines, and in particular Pfizer, that require special attention. Um, and when I looked at your, your following graph, the highest of that was obviously related to severe breathing, breathing difficulties. Can you give us any more information on that? I, I know you did say that you're still researching this. Um, what is creating that? Was it somebody, I mean, I know people who've gone for their vaccinations and who had COVID and ended up in hospital just a couple of days later. Um, and, and I don't think there's a correlation between the two. I think that's a more of a coincidental thing than, you know, that they actually got COVID from the vaccine. I don't believe that that is entirely true, but maybe you can clarify that for me. And in terms of the 4.2, and, and, you know, it's a bit concerning that Pfizer has bigger reactions than the J&J does. And I think that, that, that concerns me a little bit if there's any reason why. And in, with regards to the 4.2% death rate, okay, strikes me as being a little bit high. Um, and do we have any comparative to this 4.2% death rate in South Africa compared to those in the rest of the world? Now, I know this is early stages, and I know that our vaccine program hasn't been running, you know, has only been rolled out for a, a, a few months. But if you can give us some indications of that, I would appreciate it because it does help us when we respond to those people um, who are who are severely anti-vaxxed. You know, they just they won't, and they they have a lot to say on social media about it. And sometimes we need to put some of these issues to bed. So your assistance in this regard would help me. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, and thank you for the presentation. Uh, I have a variety of questions. Uh, my first question is, what is the reason for adverse effects being more dominant in females? And um, on the ivermectin, I have you know quite a few questions. Um, you know, I've been approached by many doctors, and ivermectin interested groups uh, have requested I raise these questions with you. SAPRA is our regulatory body today, so that their voices can be heard and a proper report back analysis of ivermectin can be provided to the country so our South African citizens can actually make an informed decision. So my first question would be, why does the Department of Health uh, follow the recommendations of a non-peer-reviewed rapid review of current science by the NEMRC? you know, which is affecting the use of ivermectin by doctors and patients who want to use it when there's internationally peer-reviewed published data that shows findings to the contrary. Now, you know, you've mentioned that, you know, when SAPRA makes decisions, you also look at um, regulatory bodies uh, outside of South Africa when making decisions. So I'm curious to have your input on this one. My second question, in terms of the High Court order, has SAPRA consulted with international bodies, including those that have successfully introduced early treatment, including ivermectin for COVID-19? I mean, some as recently as late April, and which have shown the efficacy of ivermectin in reducing rates of uh, infections you know, and death rates substantially. Now, an example would be SAPRA looked at successful early treatment programs elsewhere and uh, contacted the health regulators in like uh, Slovakia, Venezuela, and India to see how they have achieved great success with ivermectin in their protocols. Uh, my third question, why does South Africa not have a formal, you know, uh, uh, guideline for the treatment and management of COVID-19 that uses cheaper and safer 
therapeutics easily accessible to all patients, especially, you know, uh, the majority state patients. My fourth question, why isn't um, the Department of Health with SAPRA generally engaged on an urgent basis with many, many South African doctors who are effectively now treating outpatients and saving lives on a daily basis to, you know, learn for the benefit of the whole country? And especially considering that South Africa does not have the necessary capacity to manage high hospital patient intakes. I mean, we've we've got a shortage of beds, shortage of oxygen, et cetera, et cetera. My first question, the mandate of the NEMLC is to come up with proposals for therapeutics for various diseases. Now, in the COVID-19 pandemic, they have clearly failed the public significantly by only focusing on ICU or late-stage COVID-19 treatment. What, recomm what recommendations have they come up with so far out of hospital treatment? Now, early treatment surely is the key to prevent the use, you know, early treatment is, is, is key to prevent the COVID-19 virus from running its course as it doubles roughly every nine hours. Now, the many doctors in South Africa providing early treatment as well as uh, other countries mentioned, such as Slovakia, Venezuela, and India, can surely assist here given their successes and from what we can see, all have dramatically reduced COVID waves following introduction of ivermectin widely for early treatment. You know, uh, we understand that. Uh, my sixth question on ivermectin, I'm sure you are aware that COVID-19 is a treatable disease in a number of patients. Now, both treatment and prevention options are allowed in the court order section seven. Why is the public not informed of this and at least given hope so that they make informed personal choices going forward? And, um, are you aware of the problems with the Columbia study that you actually mentioned earlier? Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chairperson. Hold on, Hold on, Let me check if uh, Mama Wilson, Mama Shengwa can now come back. And I'm number five, Chairperson, also. Oh, yeah. And Dr. Jacobs, you don't come before until Dr. Tembewa is done. But let me just check for now. Mama Sengwa, how are you? Are you able to talk? Okay, we'll try and last. Before you, Dr. Jacob, there's Dr. Tembewa. Thanks. Let's take her. Uh, uh, thank you, Chairperson. I've got two questions, and the last one is a comment. And the first one is based on the, the uh, clinical studies uh, assessment phase one, where they said uh, it requires an adequate number of vaccine recipients and monitoring for a sufficient long time. My question is, what is, what is sufficient long time in, in order of months, years, or, or days, etc.? especially with reference to the dire need uh, for vaccines in, in South Africa. The second question, uh, Sapra, why, why is it difficult for you to give South Africans the vaccines of their choice? And the last one is a comment on the uh, article uh, that was retracted, the article that could have given us more positive findings towards the use of ivermectin. And I, 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 I think maybe they were threatened uh, to, they received some threats 
That, that's why they, they retracted this article. And it's very much unfortunate that our SAPRA also uh, fell for, for, for this decision. They were happy uh, to discover that this article was re, the, uh, retracted. Thank you, Chairperson. Okay, Dr. Jacobs. Thank you, Chairperson. And thank you to the SAPRA for the presentation. I want to speak about two items here. The one is on the post-market surveillance, and the other one is on the reporting of uh, adverse events. I think the biggest challenge that we're currently facing is, is the certainty with regards to the reporting on both of these two. And uh, my question is on the first one of the post-market surveillance, understanding that for any drug, or in this case a vaccine, and of course drugs to be authorized, uh, it needs to be, there needs to be continuous monitoring of the safety of that drug. But what do we rely upon in terms of getting an, uh, a reporting? Is, is this reporting done by the companies? Is it done uh, on, 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 what is the basis on which it is done? Uh, meaning, uh, how often? how regularly and how often is the reporting itself monitored and uh, how do we actually ensure that the monitoring is done now when we when we have this type of meeting as a portfolio committee then there are all of these discussions about various uh, vaccine manufacturers and there is a continuous challenge and debate uh, I would I almost want to say the word battle uh, by certain committee members to want to exert pressure upon SAPRA to, to, uh, to allow certain drugs or vaccines to be used. I think we must get a very, very good understanding as a portfolio committee on the importance of these safety measures which are put in place, including the post-market surveillance, including the reporting on adverse events and the importance of the safety of all the people of South Africa. I think we need to really use the opportunity to go and learn, read up. I've raised this before. I am raising it again so that we don't use this type of platform, which is a public platform, and to raise issues which maybe we could have informed ourselves about. But to come back to SAPRA, it would be great to hear from them how did they monitor the reporting of the post-market surveillance and how do they monitor the reporting of adverse events? Are there, is this reporting done by the companies and do the vaccinees then report to the, to, to, through the system, whether it is batch-related, whether it is uh, company-related, whether it is... Uh, whether there's a certainty that the cell is self-reporting, is it electronic reporting, and uh, how certain are we of the uh, of the uh, reliability of the data which is then received through this type of reporting? I think it's very important that we do understand this. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much, Honorable yeah. Chairperson. Chair, yeah. let me also. Um, Thank the, the presentation by, by SAPRA. 
Uh, I think, Chair, I won't repeat. Uh, I think uh, Honorable Jacobs has touched one of my points that I wanted to raise. But I really want to thank separate Honorable Chairperson for, 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 for having covered some of my concerns. Uh, most importantly, on the steps uh, in which uh, the steps that are taken to authorize any drug or vaccination. I think they have covered me very well. They've also uh, covered the misunderstandings and the misinformation that has been around, uh, you know, the approval of some of the vaccines from, from other countries. Chair, I also, my, one of my most concerns that they have also covered, it's around the, 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 how they has been used in the country and who has been permitted to use it and so on. I think I really need to say thank you very much, Chair. Honorable Munyai. Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. Thank you very much for receiving report uh, by SAPRA. And always when we ask them, they do come. And that is very important. I think this report today was very much comprehensive and also addressing those issues that Honorable Chair would have requested them to come and present. First issue, I think I need to ask the question. I just, I was reading the, 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 the Guardian uh, uh, from the UK, which uh, was published, I think, 15 July. It was to, trying to indicate that a huge study uh, support, with, with regarding to Avermectin has been withdrawn, uh, COVID-19 treatment has been withdrawn over ethical concern. This document is entailed, I think I posted it before, the portfolio committee for everyone to read. And I'm saying that it's important only when there's sufficient data that uh, consideration should be made. Failure to, to have the data that supports scientific evidence may put us in the disarray as a country and the population. So I'm saying that um, I'm not saying this in order to influence SAPRA. They are independent and their authority and independence should still remain to be safeguarded by all of us, of all of us as members of parliament. But then the last question that I want to, to raise, I, I would, on the issues of the adverse effect, and I, I would propose that we'll have a focus meeting in the future just, just focus on that issue, Honorable Chair. So the rest, I'm very satisfied, Honorable Chair. That will be my submission for today. Thank you. Okay. Mama Sengwa. Try. Okay, it looks like she's really having a challenge with the connectivity. Thank uh, you, Chairperson. She... Oh, great. Thanks Thank you, Chairman. <laughs> First of all, let me acknowledge the report, and it was very informative and comprehensive. But before I get to the report, let me pass the condolences to the ANC members because of the passing away of Mrs. Malulege and her better half. Please be calm and God have given and God have taken. Amen.
Uh, I have one question. In recent day, we have seen signs of increasing COVID-19 infection in countries which have vaccinated many people and which can consider a success example, including the UK and the USA. Their governments in those countries have also made a public statement expressing concerns about the high infection rate among people who have been vaccinated. Should this worry us in any way about the effectiveness of vaccine or is anything that these countries missed which we should avoid? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, on my side, thank you very much, Mam Shengwa. On my side, I saw uh, the CEO making a presentation, making mention of Spookmeek, uh, having been brought to your attention by more than one applicant. Uh, what do you do in such a situation? You listen to Dr. Lomo with his application, and therefore tomorrow somebody else comes again on Spookmeek, or how, how does it go? But number two, to amplify the point raised by Honorable Chirwa, you have just written there, Spooknik in review. Uh, it would be helpful so that uh, we, we don't bring you again here on a statement in review, but to say in brackets, all documentation have been submitted or the safety issue has been challenged, they are looking at it or whatever. So in review is a very general a point which does not give a listener what else is outstanding. Maybe you are saying we are reviewing because all documentations have been submitted, which we will welcome if there's such a story. I was also following issues of um, vaccines in relation to a particular country. You used to write in brackets, now we know Sputnik in, in Russia. Where, where are you with the other va vaccine application or has it come to your space, the vaccine application from the a product prepared from Cuba, if you could be able to also give an indication on that one. Now, I, I, I belong to a chat group of uh, SAMA, South African Medical Association. There are views there, different views on, uh, on ivermectin. And uh, I would wish that if you could maybe understand there to say there are those who are saying use ivermectin, there are those who are saying be cautious. Now, I would want to ask the question the other way around than what Honorable Ismail was asking, to say, are there any doctors in the country who are prescribing ivermectin to their patients who have then started submitting data to yourself? Because it's not the other way around. It's not going to be SAPRA going countrywide asking for information. It is the onus is upon those who find value in this and collectively write and submit a data that will then be seen as too uh, valuable in terms of that. There is a, I look at SAPRA as like a, a, a particular company that is grounding its airline because of a safety and efficacy that it is, mainly safety. Now, no matter how hard you wish 
if that airline company says our flight shall be grounded until we have satisfied ourselves that this, that, and the other has been satisfied. You, you can't do against that because there are certain protocols and checklists that they have to go through. That was my understanding uh, how they are doing it. All I'm appreciative also of surprise that uh, we, they have taken some of these health products that are very topical because of pandemic. They have put them on the front of the queue in terms of being processed. But the honor still rests with us to meet that expectation because it cannot be that because a particular country has made this recommendation about ivermectin, therefore we fall into that. We need to have our own regulatory board being satisfied that it meets the safety, the efficacy, and the quality. Now, if it has not submitted enough documentation, so I just want to check if I'm way out, Dr. Mente, in that thinking process. My thinking is that we will call you again when you are saying now there's a progress in that. Otherwise, your explanation remains the same every time that this is your stand when it comes to a particular product. The onus is on me to make submissions and give you enough evidence to actually make sure that that drug, that product is actually going through because I've submitted all the necessary things. Uh, can you then come back to comment and assist us with your responses on that? Thank you, Chair. Um, I'll ask um, the board chair if she maybe wants to make some um, comments before I start. Um, thank you very much, uh, Honourable Chairperson and Honourable Members. I mean, you're raising things. I think many of us are on these uh, different WhatsApp chats and many of the things that you're raising are raised and they're, they're not easy. And it's not easy always to explain what a regulator does to the lay public. And in fact, the regulatory process has got more attention because of the pandemic than I think ever before. I suspect many people didn't even know there was such a thing as a drug regulator. Later. I'm going to start, I'm going to take some general points and then uh, hand over to Professor Rees. Yes, certainly. Sorry, sorry to disturb you. There's a member who has raised his hand. He has just joined us and he would like to ask, but I suppose he read the presentation. Imam Sheikh, you want to say something? We're done with the questions, but I see your hand is up now. Let, let me apologize, Chairperson, to all of you. I've been in a, a media briefing as well at the same time. I'm not sure. I have a few questions. Would I be able to post them or can we do it later? It's up to you, sir. No shame. Post them because you are coming in okay. from another. Yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, let me thank you because I think that I've just been informed that my letter to SEPRA and the National Department of Health has had a response uh, and it has now been sent to me. I haven't had time to actually uh, uh, look at it. Uh, yeah. Uh, my first question, I think, is this, you know, uh, I see you, 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 you talk about that you need to get approval from SEPRA before vaccines are procured. And I want you to be very open about this. Would I be correct if I say that you allowed in South Africa the procurement of vaccines without an application being put in place, a Section 21 application, and you've allowed it to be procured without any approval or in, 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 in by SEPRA. That's the first thing, okay? The second thing is this, you know, 
you talk about, you know, uh, in terms of vaccines, one looks at, at, at uh, from a very long-term perspective, uh, what is the success and outcome of these vaccines? And secondly, you talk about that trials normally uh, include animals. Would I be correct if I say that none of these vaccines were tried on animals? And thirdly, or secondly, in this case, that indeed, you did not wait for a long enough period of time. And please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I have taken my vaccine. In fact, I went today to take the next one, but I'll be taking it tomorrow. So I'm taking it. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the second thing is this. Uh, you talk about that it, over a long period of time, that is what when you wait for a trial, the results of that before these things are, 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 are allowed to be used by people. And this is not the case. In a very short space of time, the trial period is supposed to go on to about 2023, but vaccines are being rolled out all over the country, which in my view and interpretation, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, I will call it a trial from now right up to 2023, because by then only would you have a, an, a, the results uh, or reports, a comprehensive reports on how these vaccines have really worked whether it has worked, how many people have really died out of it, uh, how many side effects and things, I don't think I ever... Uh, on the issue of, uh, of ivermectin, you, 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 know, you talk about uh, 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 doctors or whoever want to prescribe it uh, can do that and take full responsibility for it. But yet the vaccines, you're asking us who's going to take it, we must take full responsibility. There's no indemnity. Uh, you've given indemnity actually to all the vaccine manufacturers and things. So when it suits SEPRA, you know, you put us in the firing line. So we, if something goes wrong, have no, got no claim over these people, okay? The no fault claim. But yet when it comes to the doctors, you say they must take responsibility for the ivermectin. Very importantly on the issue of ivermectin, and you talk about you get outside or uh, 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 reports and, and trials and, and things that, that you go in for uh, different uh, institutions worldwide. Ivermectin has also got a whole lot of reports that are coming showing it successfully. Uh, but I know you're going to argue that you don't have it, but you're not consistent in your argument. I've just said that. And I'm not going to be able to convince you either. And neither are you going to be able to convince me. But be that as it may, that's the, that's the, 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 the situation in terms of that. Uh, I'm not sure if you did give a report on what's the latest, but I'm sure it's on the letter that you may have sent me on what's the latest in terms of, of, of uh, ivermectin itself. And I'm not sure if my colleagues has asked. My understanding is this, that the Pfizer vaccine has got a much greater efficacy rate. And I've heard some talk about 97% to Johnson & Johnson. I'm not sure if it's changed uh, recently, is about 63%. I'd like to know the rationale behind that in wanting to go for so much of Johnson & Johnson vaccines. And then lastly, Chairperson, I think you, uh, and I might have missed this, and you might have again covered this, and um, I apologize for that. The, I think you are now getting the Sinovac or so, the, the, the Chinese vaccines. My concern, Chairperson, is this, that I'm told that the vaccine that we've just agreed on is, uh, has been used by countries like Indonesia and others. And I'm told that the death rate 
And the serious side effect rate is enormous in this country through that vaccine. So I'm worried and I need you to tell me, did you agree on this because you have been put under undue pressure? Or have you done your homework based on what I am reading about some of the reports from the different countries? I'll stop there for now. Chairperson, thank you very much for your Thank you. Back to you, Professor Rees, and then you can then take the other leaders after including these questions. Thanks. Thank you very much. And as I was saying um, before Yarom Iman Sheikh came on, uh, many of the issues you're raising, they are difficult because there are very strong views held in, in different directions. Um, and one of the points of having a regulatory authority is indeed to be as neutral as possible. Um, and it is incredibly important to uh, Honourable Iman Sheikh's uh, uh, just last comment there that the regulator is independent and should not be pressurized. And one of the reasons for that uh, is that we all know, as citizens of this country, as with parents, with children, with relatives and friends, we want to know that when something is approved uh, by the regulatory authority, that we can trust the process, which is why we, we are very happy to go through repeatedly what the process is, as Dr. Samete has just done. It's very important that we will know and trust that the medicines that we get from a pharmacy or from a clinic or when we're under anesthetic or when we give it to our children is safe and it will work and it's got quality manufacturing behind it. Uh, if we don't trust that process, we won't be able to trust any of the medicines. And so it has to be an independent process. It has to be science driven and it has to be in the public health interest and nothing else should influence. Now, in the current context, clearly one of the public health influences is that we are in the middle of a pandemic. And in the middle of a pandemic, it cannot be business as usual for anyone, and particularly not the regulatory authority, which is why everything to do with COVID is fast-tracked. Um, but that doesn't mean that corners are cut, and those are two different things. With respect to the last question about, you know, how long does it normally take much longer for vaccines? How do we know that this is safe? And then it comes into the questions that have been raised about the pharmacovigilance, about monitoring for the safety of the vaccines. Um, so, so certainly, if you look at the average time that it takes to develop a vaccine, other vaccines that we, we commonly use for children and adults, it takes anything, a short time would be six or seven years to actually develop a vaccine. And some will be 30 years. And some are very, very difficult. Uh, you know, a really good TB vaccine is proving very difficult. HIV vaccines, we all know, we're still struggling with. Some vaccines are much more difficult to develop than others. But it does take a long time. But because of the pandemic, the process has been pushed in and, and uh, consolidated. Instead of seeing, the, or you saw the animal studies, the preclinical studies, the phase one, the phase two, the phase three, going sequentially, we've overlapped things. And we're looking at, the question was raised about animal data. Animal data will still be going on being generated, but the animal data will overlap with the lab data. The lab data overlaps with the phase one or phase one, phase two, phase three. These studies overlap. And even when we introduce these vaccines, what we now are, are developing and we have is what's called an effectiveness study, where we look at breakthrough infections. We say how effective and how safe are these vaccines once we introduce them 
to the wider community. So you can't stop with these clinical trials. You have to look at them for the wider community. So it's certainly not business as usual, but it has to be science driven. Now, in terms of the, the pharmacovigilance, I'm sure Dr. Sumetti will go into more of the details. But one of the issues here, just remember, who did we start with when we started introducing the vaccines? It was people over 60. Now, for people in this age group, uh, this age group is much more likely to get things like heart problems or strokes or thrombosis or other problems with respiratory uh, diseases. Um, they're much more likely just because of their age group and because they have many more of the comorbidities that we've talked a lot about. So when you see something like, for example, the point was made about respiratory difficulties, when you see those respiratory difficulties, the question you have to say is, is that caused by the vaccine? Or is that something that was going to happen to this individual because of lots of other risk factors in the normal course of events? So when we collect all this data, that there's a very specific process that has gone through to say, is this causal? Does the vaccine cause this problem? And if it did cause this problem, if we come to that conclusion, how common is it? Is it very rare? Is it one or two or three per million vaccine doses? Or is it much more common and something that we really have to now take seriously and perhaps restrict to you know, exclude certain people with pre-risk factors? So all of that has to be analyzed. But importantly, South Africa doesn't do this alone. So all of that safety data that we're collecting uh, we share with the World Health Organization, they have a global committee that looks at all of this data called the Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety. They look at all this data from around the world and many countries are collecting this data. And then they're able to, with a much, much, much bigger data set, be able to say, are we seeing that side effect? Does it look like it's associated with that vaccine? If it is associated, how common is it? And is the benefit of the, the vaccines, does it still outweigh the risk of that adverse event? So it's incredibly important process. It's a global process and we're part of it. On the specifics that you were asking about, um, Dr. Smitty can, can talk to that. Um, the third sort of overarching thing was, was from um, Honorable Showa. Um, which was about, well, you asked a specific thing about the mesh, which Dr. Smetty will, but I'm, I'm going to talk, you said, who's influencing the decisions of the regulator? Is it, we seem to be influenced by the, the FDA, which is the US FDA. There are other FDAs around the world for other countries. And the answer is that nowadays, um, there's a process that just about every regulatory authority participates in, which is called reliance. And this means that increasingly what we're trying to do is to share information amongst regulatory authorities. And that starts very locally. So we have sub-regional groups with the, our neighboring countries where we have um, committees that actually are reviewing dossiers together. For the African region, there's a, a committee that actually evolved more strongly after the Ebola outbreak in West Africa called AVARIF. And that is the committee of regulators and ethicists from many, many different African countries that for some clinical trial applications and for some registration applications, including vaccines, will collectively do a collective review. And that review then can be shared back to the regulatory authorities. And then if we go more global, we share information with groups such as the 
the European Medicines Agency, and as you said, the US Food and Drug Administration. That's up there. But we also very strongly at the moment, and incredibly importantly for uh, the vaccines that we've just been talking about, but also with ivermectin, we are talking all the time to the World Health Organization because the World Health Organization has a process because this is a global public health emergency under international law called international health regulation, they are able to implement a process called emergency use licensure. Um, and they are looking at each of these vaccines. So when we look at a vaccine, we've, we gave ourselves two criteria, two cutting sort of benchmarks. One was that we said we will only look at vaccines that in the early clinical trials had 50% effectiveness, and we will only look at vaccines and consider them with when they have this WHO approval process. And we work very closely with WHO as they do their approval process. So it's a sort of synergy there. Um, so those two things have to be met. And you can see that some of the, the products have this emergency use licensure. I should just mention, and the specifics of Sputnik, Dr. Sameti will talk to uh, for SAPRA, but the emergency use licensure from WHO hasn't been given yet to Sputnik. That's because they're continuing to submit data, and it's only anticipated that it will probably be, uh, there will be an, uh, uh, some announcement on that in the third quarter of, well, we're in the third quarter, but later on in the third quarter of this year. So, so that's, that's the issue of, of um, reliance. Um, just, uh, I'm just seeing, uh, I, th I think, I'll just say one, one thing about ivermectin, and I'm really happy to come in, and it's difficult. I, I mean, I, I totally, the one thing that I think we all absolutely see is the desperation, particularly for doctors working in the, doctors and nurses, but doctors who are prescribing in the primary care sector, that they desperately want to have medications that work that they can give to ambulant patients that they're looking after um, to stop them progressing into more serious disease. Unfortunately, this is an area where the research is extremely difficult to do, and there's much, much less data on early treatment interventions than there is on advanced treatment interventions for hospitalized patients. There's even less data for medications that would prevent infection other than vaccines, even less data for that. And the regulator can only go on the data that is available to it. The other thing, just to remind everybody, and I'm sorry that we're repeating ourselves, but to date, nobody has applied. You've seen all these vaccine applicants applying with vaccines. No one has come to SAPRA and said, here is an ivermectin product. Here is the data on COVID. Please review it for even for emergency use, which is what we would be probably looking at. Nobody has submitted that. What we've seen submitted most recently that Dr. Sameti referred to was a human formulation product, but for the recognized indication for ivermectin, which is for the treatment of parasitic diseases, not for the treatment of COVID. Now the regulator can't approve anything if nobody, um, if nobody applies with a product with the data. The regulator, as SAPRA, we have from the very beginning said we would, we would welcome people submitting clinical trials on ivermectin because that is the data that's needed, a really 
well-designed, well-conducted clinical trials, not small trials, not trials that it's very difficult to interpret in some instances, but really well-designed trials. We haven't had an application here. But what I will say is there is such an application in the United Kingdom now for a well-designed large trial for using ivermectin for treatment. Um, and those are the kinds of trials that will break the problem that we're in at the moment with really strongly held views, people interpreting data differently, that's the kind of data that, as regulators around the world, we're all appealing for. Um, so so let, me, let me just stop there because uh, I can come back in after Dr. Sumetti, but I'm happy to answer any other questions. And I'll hand over to Dr. Sumetti. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Tim. I just wanted to um, answer the questions in almost four buckets. And um, these will be on the vaccines. And then I'll ask my colleagues, um, uh, Chief Regulatory Officer, Ms. Poshan Kambule, to speak to some of the areas around the vaccine safety. Um, so her and her team will speak to that. And then Mr. Dion Puvan will speak to the issue of the surgical uh, mesh. So just to um, indicate, um, and there were questions around the timeframe that it's taken for you know, these products um, to be um, authorized and that typically um, the studies would take a lot longer. And so from, from our perspective, um, and, and I'll try to address it in, in this manner of saying, typically it does take long to authorize vaccines, typically it does take long to um, have vaccines go through the various development um, stages. But with the global acknowledgement that we are in a pandemic, a lot of the assessments were done in parallel. So instead of waiting for a um, you know, preclinical study, um, then you submit an application for a phase one study, you do that, you complete that, review that data, then you do a phase um, two and then a phase three. A lot was done in parallel across the world with all of these vaccines. And so, again, it's with the context of um, us being under a public health emergency across the world. And with that said, as um, global community of regulators, as the Prof of Prof Helen has said, that there is then um, standardized minimum requirements that need to be met um, for these vaccines. These minimum requirements speak to the vaccine efficacy, um, as indicated, the minimum is a 50% um, efficacy. And this is a, a disease that is evolving, as we've all noted. And so we have to see this even with the variants of concern. So what we are also evaluating as we review these vaccines is the efficacy against the variants of concern. We would look at the lab data against those um, variants and also look at the um, clinical uh, data for those uh, variants. But there's um, 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 this international uh, uh, guideline that we're all um, complying to. The second part I want to mention around that is, as I indicated earlier, none of these vaccines have full market authorization because indeed there is uh, the understanding that they still are in the assessment, uh, so to say, but we needed to consider the fact that we are under um, public health emergency, but these vaccines must meet the minimum requirement. And that's why they've got the emergency um, authorization. So they would then be assessed. And hence, I, I want to just stress that across the world, no vaccine has a full market authorization. So there's been parallel review. I mean, even with our processes, 
We've partnered, uh, WHO has put in place what they call a collaborative um, review process that we are members um, of and part of as SAPRA. So we're all leveraging um, skill sets across the world. We're also utilizing data generated across the world. Um, the next point I want to make is while we are given these emergency use authorization and understanding that you know, this is a disease, this is a virus that continues to change. We've put conditions on and all of these authorization. Some of these conditions speak to the need for continuous reporting to us as a regulator. And wherein we, we, we find that um, as this vaccine is being analyzed as part of its uh, post-market surveillance, wherein it may not meet some of the requirements, as a regulator, we can suspend the authorization. We can even retract the authorization. And so we are engaging with these applicants regularly. So the conditions, for example, speak to regular reporting on the safety of these products. They speak to regular reporting on the efficacy of these products against um, the variants of concern. And so those are some of the things that we, we are monitoring um, around these vaccines. Um, Prof. Helen has already spoken about um, protocols being put in place at a national level to um, study any breakthrough infections. And, you know, as SAPRA, we are obviously part of those uh, discussions. And it is important that we understand the extent of the breakthrough infections, understand the extent of the breakthrough infections um, against the different vaccines, the breakthrough infections, um, you know, we would see in our country versus other countries. So there's all of that that we are um, evaluating. So the data that's been shared uh, or the comment that was mentioned around um, uh, data in, in, in Chile where um, the Sinovac vaccine was utilized and there were um, uh, high uh, breakthrough infections. We are monitoring all of that. And we then also as a condition said, as it would be then rolled out in the country, they have to report to us. And it's not only for Sinovac that they have to report on these breakthrough infections. It is also for the other vaccines like the Pfizer and the J&J. The last point that I'd like to uh, uh, comment on, and um, once my colleagues have commented, I'll come back and I'll comment on ivermectin, is around our role as a regulator. I hear questions around why don't we give um, you know, individuals an option of which vaccine to utilize, et cetera. So our role as SAPRA does not extend to um, the procurement of the vaccines and does not extend to the actual rollout. <clears throat> so it is then the, 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 the public and the private sector under the leadership of the National Department of Health that does the procurement, that implements the rollout. The department has shared their partnership with the private sector in terms of um, um, the rollout sites. And um, we cannot determine whether the country decides to, um, you know, give us uh, options or not. But what we as a regulator have done is to ensure that every application that's been made um, to SAPRA, we review it and the country then does have options in terms of which vaccines to procure. Again, because this is a disease that is um, you know, uh, uh, developing, we do need to explore various um, types of vaccines. As we see, we now are dealing with the Delta variant. 
and one would need to look at um, different vaccines and look at the efficacy of those um, vaccines. So I'll pause here and I'll ask Portia to lead the discussion on the safety, um, please, Jim. And then I'll come back on ivermectin. Thank you, CEO, and thank you, Chair. Good, good afternoon, honorable members. Chair, with your permission, if I don't, I would request that I don't put my video on. Um, we're experiencing power failure on, on, on our end in my area. Okay, so I will go straight into the um, matter that talks to the um, uh, safety monitoring of, of, of the vaccines that are, are already rolled out. And uh, as the CEO has indicated, with the approval of these vaccines, there are conditions that the regulator would, um, you know, would include for the applicants to, to adhere with or to comply with um, the pharmacovigilance commitment. And in this particular case, this would be what would be expected of the applicant or the company to supply to SAPRA or submit to SAPRA would be serious adverse events that needs to be reported within 24 hours. A summary of adverse events following immunization that needs to be submitted within, uh, I mean, on two weekly basis. And also on monthly basis, the company needs to submit safety reports that will be in the form of a simplified periodic safety update report. And this report should include worldwide data. And at a minimum, it should contain estimated exposures, cumulative and interval adverse events tabulations, from post-marketing experience and ongoing trials. And this they should also include a summary of signals identified, validated and closed. And uh, changes to the company core data sheet needs to also be included, uh, reflected on that monthly um, uh, PSUR. And they also need to um, include summary of requests from regulatory authorities and an interpretation discussing the risk benefit balance of the vaccine. And lastly, they need to also report on, they need to submit reports on virological um, analysis of variant type on any breakthrough infections. And then on annual basis, they need to submit to us an annual review of drug safety information for a period of no less than two years to identify any other potential risk not captured previously. And um, how these adverse events are reported, uh, these are reported by the healthcare professionals. Um, it could be patient or the vaccinees who have received an, um, a, 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 vaccine, a, a vaccine. And they, once they experience an adverse event uh, following immunization, they will report to, to the healthcare professional and who will, you know, in, in turn report to, to SAPRA. Or they can directly report um, to, to, to the regulator using um, the Made Safety app which has been launched by SAPRA in, in April. And also there is um, a, another reporting mechanism that is um, e-reporting portal on the SAPRA website. And there are also paper-based systems that are used at the healthcare facilities or that are used by the healthcare professionals. And um, those are captured into what we call the Vigilance Hub, which is the back office of the Made Safety app. And these paper-based uh, applications uh, paper-based reports are also captured at district level, provincial level, and also at national, and uh, uh, you know, and also reported to SAPRA. And um, this vigil vigilance hub is accessible to both the SAPRA and the National Department of Health. 
So the total number of um, adverse events reported with the J&J vaccine and also combinative vaccine as reported in the CEO uh, slide presentation is about 1,494. These are the cases. And then with, with, with that, there are adverse events that would have been indicated in one individual report that would have been submitted to the regulatory authority. And once all these adverse events uh, following immunizations are received, these are causality assessed. We've got a body that uh, do causality assessment. That is the National Immunization Safety Expert Committee, NISEC, that, um, you know, SAPRA belong, is, is also a member to that, that also that does um, causality assessment and identify signals. So I will pause the chair and then hand over to my colleagues. Thank you. Thanks, Posha. Dothan, do you want to speak to the specific questions, for example, around the differences in numbers between the Pfizer and the um, Janssen vaccine, the death rate, um, etc.? Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, CEO. Uh, if, with your indulgence, Chair, if I were to not put on my camera, I'm having bandwidth challenges. Um, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes, yes, we can hear you. Yes, yes. Thank you, Chair, and uh, thanks, uh, members. Uh, yes, uh, CEO, uh, the question of... Uh, I'll start with the question of uh, Pfizer appearing to have more uh, reactions than the JNJ. I think uh, the uh, Chair, uh, Prof. Rees, uh, did touch on that. Uh, it uh, has. It probably has to do with the age groups uh, that are being uh, vaccinated. Uh, at the start of the rollout and the uh, comorbidities that are common in that in that in that age group, uh, which might uh, result in a, 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 an impression that uh, you you have uh, much worse safety outcomes with the Pfizer. But uh, obviously, causality assessment is ongoing, and uh, we did mention that uh, some of that causality assessment would include things like postmortems and uh, other investigations just to settle the issue of whether the vaccine is responsible or not. Uh, one other question that uh, I saw was uh, skipped was the uh, issue of uh, communicating uh, what, uh, what the adverse events are, how many they are, and their provincial distribution. Uh, yes, uh, it's a project that uh, we have uh, started on and uh, we have a steering committee uh, that is responsible for the communication of vaccine safety issues. And that uh, is between the NDOH, uh, Government Communications, SAPRA, and uh, the EP, EPI, uh, where we are formulating a strategy and uh, we are quite advanced uh, in terms of uh, formulating a communication strategy and messaging that will tackle issues that was mentioned by the honorable member that include things like vaccine hesitancy and other issues around there uh, with regards to how people perceive the report that uh, adverse events. And uh, the, the, the crux of the strategy is to be able to give the real story uh, uh, as openly as possible and to ensure that uh, our public is informed of what the adverse events are. But uh, that, uh, that uh, message, obviously, uh, it has been our intention and I'm glad that the honorable member did mention that it has been our intention to break it down into how many they are in their provincial distributions and any other indicators uh, that uh, we think will be helpful 
in order to convey the message. So yes, the strategy is uh, in place and uh, is maturing every day. And uh, our first publication will be a Q&A, uh, sort of allaying the fears and answering the most common questions uh, that will be published uh, between, uh, well, hopefully by Friday. And then uh, the first dashboard that will uh, uh, stratify uh, the message in terms of how many uh, cases, their provincial distribution and all of those other indicators uh, should be able to be ready uh, between now and the end of the month. But uh, we are quite advanced as far as that activity is concerned. Uh, yes, Chair, and uh, I think the next question, uh, Professor Rees has addressed the issue of uh, the uh, uh, noted breathing difficulties with the Pfizer uh, uh, vaccine, I think she handled that quite well. So I will not go over that uh, again. And then there was a question on death rates comparable to the rest of the world. Uh, as far as uh, we can see uh, uh, where the data is at at the moment, uh, there are no uh, discrepancies in terms of uh, the uh, fatality outcomes that we are seeing with these uh, vaccines compared to the rest of the world. Uh, but uh, obviously that space is being monitored uh, very closely uh, to make sure that it stays like that and the risk benefit as uh, authorized uh, uh, stays the same. Otherwise we may have to uh, take action, but uh, it looks uh, comparable at the moment. Uh, on the issue of uh, post-marketing surveillance, I think uh, Poshia treated that very well, and I don't have much to add there. Um, yeah, I think that's it, uh, Chair. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, CEO. Chair, thank you, Professor. Thank you. Thanks, Dothan. Just to add, and before I move to the surgical mesh, and then we move to ivermectin, just the questions that I note we haven't responded to on the status of the Sputnik um, vaccine. So we've had a number of engagements with um, applicants because it was a rolling review and a Section 21 um, review mechanism. So in terms of the data for the safety and their efficacy, they've provided us the data that we've requested. We are busy evaluating that. Uh, we are also busy um, evaluating the um, uh, quality aspects and that speaks to the manufacturing um, site of that. So what we've requested for, um, as we said today, we have now received, we're busy evaluating. And um, depending on the um, quality of their submission of the data that we've asked for, we will either um, you know, continue to engage until we're satisfied or they may well satisfy us now. So we are in the heart of um, evaluating um, what has been provided uh, to us. In terms of um, how, oh, how we manage uh, in instances where we've got more than one applicant, um, one of the differences that we're finding is that um, because these vaccines are manufactured in different sites, not all of them uh, manufacture at the same site. So we have to look at that. So when the submission is received by us, we look at, is it exactly the same dossier, meaning same manufacturing site, same data or not, and in some instances it's not. So we have to then evaluate them as separate um, submissions. But one of the things that we have communicated to other applicants that do want to bring these vaccines is that we would need to get um, confirmation 
of the agreement that they have then with the manufacturer. So whether it is the Gamalaya Institute or it is Sinopharm, for example, because it is important that, um, as we indicated in that vaccine process, that we ensure that the applicant has got the capacity to, um, because the applicants do have the responsibility of ensuring that when a product is then available in the country, they can monitor it. And if there's any quality defects, et cetera, we then have um, a company that we can hold accountable to and they can deal with that. So we've put in mechanisms to ensure that the submission we get is indeed of companies that meet um, that first step um, that we spoke about. The other comment and question I want to speak to is around um, whether we've received an application um, from Cuba as yet. No, we have not um, received um, an application uh, from um, the Cuban uh, uh, manufacturers at this point. And then the last point I thought I'll speak to is around the um, efficacy uh, of those, a specific question around the efficacy of the Sinovac uh, vaccine. And I think Prof. Rees alluded to this also when she spoke about the reviews that are done um, even by these um, strategic advisory committees. We also looked at the WHO re review. And what we are satisfied with is that, um, and, and, and just to also mention that these vaccines, while they do not prevent infection, what we have noted is the impact they have in terms of reducing the disease severity, of reducing hospitalization and death. And we are confident and if we were, we wouldn't have authorized this vaccine that it does indeed reduce disease severity. We're not saying you're not going to see breakthrough infections. We have to analyze to what extent we are seeing breakthrough infections with Pfizer and J&J. &J. As we've indicated, we have to assess to what extent with this vaccine. But we are, at least we are satisfied that it met the requirements of indicating that it reduces disease severity, hospitalization and death. So those are the uh, parameters we looked at. I think we've covered everything on the vaccines. We'll now move to Dion to speak to the surgical mesh. It will be a quite a brief um, response. Um, as, um, and then I'll talk to Ivermectin. Thank you. Dion. Thank you, Dr. Thumi. And uh, good afternoon, honorable chairperson and honorable members. With regards to the uh, surgical mesh, I can confirm that SAPRA has not received any adverse events with regards to the surgical mesh. However, we will continue to monitor from a post-market surveillance perspective. Thank you. Um, thank you, Dion. So this matter has indeed uh, been raised uh, with us and we are monitoring it. Um, so yeah, thanks for that. Um, in terms of then ivermectin, and again, Prof. Lise has, has touched on this, I just want to, um, you know, confirm um, there was a point made around the National Essential Medicine List Committee in terms of the review that they conduct. I mean, if you look at their, um, at their uh, uh, recommendations, they do an extensive um, review of published data. And they always have extensive number of publications that they include in there. So it is a credible uh, review committee. It's a review committee that takes into account all the information that is made available at the time. What you will note is that they do continuous um, reviews of the data that is um, in existence, and hence they have the regular updates. We've also done um, similarly as SAPRA, where internally we've looked at the emerging data so that we can then also determine do we then change our position uh, or not? 
Um, in terms of, um, you know, have we consulted with um, uh, um, the medical practitioners in the country and maybe other regulators? Um, we have, and we continue to engage. We've indicated that we are open to engaging. Um, we've engaged uh, quite extensively, even when we put the program in place. Um, you know, it was um, uh, uh, an open webinar that we, we had where we received information. Um, in terms of the regulatory authorities, we continue to monitor their position. Um, we continue to monitor papers that are being published on this. So I think we've done um, sufficient um, uh, exercises to ensure that we are kept abreast of the uh, developments. And as, as indicated, I think Prof. Reese eloquently stated, I think the pressure that the health sector is under or you know, the medical practitioners are under and hence the considerations. But as a regulator, it is important um, that we ensure the public safety and what determines our decision is science-based information. And that's why we say we can help in ensuring that we do generate that data through a controlled um, access program. Um, there were some points that were made, which um, you know we aren't particularly specific for us in terms of the recommendations for early treatment. Um, as a sub, as SAPRA, we don't inform treatment regimens for various therapeutic um, indications. Our role is largely around the health products um, themselves. So I'm sure this is a question that the department can, um, uh, the Department of Health can speak to. And in terms of the publications, um, you know, we've indicated in our presentation, the ones that we have um, considered, we continue to review all the publications um, that are made, uh, that are peer reviewed and made available to the scientific community. Chair, I think I'm going to pause here. I hope we've covered everything. Thank you. You also have covered us on ivermectin, isn't it? Yes. Dr. Semente? Hello, Dr. Semente. Sorry, yes, Chair. We have covered everything that you wanted to cover. Yes, I'd like to believe so, thank you. Okay. Okay, yeah, honorable members, I, from my side, I, I would want to give USAPRA uh, an impression that we have received everything that we wanted to hear up to today with regards to, unless uh, honorable, that hand is an old hand. Eh? Yeah, unless there are new developments will be appraised by them in terms of the progress because we are now here where they are with Sputnik. We hear there's no, there's no application as yet from the Cuban vaccine. And therefore we take it uh, that the progress that will come through to us again will be when they actually have made certain findings. With regards to vaccines, the update was given. Uh, I noticed that um, there are two hands. Are these new hands, Honorable Ishmael? Yes, Chair. Yes, just, mine is also with... a new hand, Chairperson. Honorable Chirwa, one after the other. Start, Honorable Ishmael. I saw your hand first. Okay, and then Honorable Ishmael and uh, Chirwa. Any other new hand follow up? Those two. Thank you. 
Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, just a direct clarity-seeking question for SAPRA. Would you then say that as a regulator, you want to be neutral? Why not emulate the American, American NIH and say that with a lack of evidence needed, you don't recommend, recommend neither for nor against the use of ivermectin for COVID? Now, I'm really asking this question because, you know, uh, I've been made aware that some doctors at, at hospitals are not allowed to prescribe ivermectin even for immerse, emergency usage. And, um, you know, I, I'm just being a bit skeptical here to say that, you know, I know Safra has allowed uh, for emergency usage of ivermectin, but um, doctors that are working at hospitals obviously have to follow the instructions from their CEOs. And I'm, you know, trying to now understand um, that, you know, if doctors are then not allowed to use their discretion and take the responsibility and prescribe ivermectin, where do we go from here? So that's that's basically what I'm trying to, you know, uh, uh, get get from you to say that, you know, how is this being addressed? That means that doctors actually don't have, um, you, you know, what SAPRA is allowed, actually uh, doctors hands are tied, you know, that, that is basically what I'm trying to gather from you, you know, I want, I want an understanding from there, thank you. Thank you, uh, Chairperson, for allowing me to do a follow-up question. Um, I wanted, to, I want, I want to ask Sapra uh, because they are, they are, they are now letting us know that uh, there is no longer outstanding data um, from Sputnik, and that the data that was outstanding was submitted. Um, I just want to get the dates uh, from from Sapra of when this data was outstanding and when it was subsequently submitted to SAPRA and when the evaluation uh, of this outstanding data then started. I'm asking this because it was one of the very uh, consistent responses in relation to even Sinopharm in the beginning, because when I was in the very beginning, I was asking a lot about Sinopharm um, and this progressed to then being a Sputnik issue. Um, and I'm saying, I'm giving this context because there is some perception that's created that, that we are putting pressure on SAPRA. There's nothing pressurizing SAPRA by wanting to know what the process is, um, as in regards to their response as well, wanting to know in regards to what they have said. They are now saying that the data has been submitted, but this has not been shared with the public as much as they had spoken about the fact that there's outstanding data. So please appraise us as well of what this data is, because you still have not told me what this data is and when it was submitted um, and when the evaluation then started. And number the last follow-up, uh, I'm very concerned about uh, your position on surgical mesh. There's been numerous countries that have banned the use of surgical mesh, and it has not been banned in South Africa, New Zealand, Scotland, uh, in, in England, the UK, there's been uh, warnings on, on, on the use of surgical mesh, especially transvaginal mesh, um, and this is still being used in South Africa. SAPRA as a regulatory body, especially with the context that Professor Rees given us, has given us in relation to their relationship with other regulatory bodies across the globe and even in the region, especially noting that even the NDOH is going through litigation cases by South African citizens who had adverse effects on the use of surgical mesh. And for SAPRA to say that they have not received any complaint actually raises eyebrows because as a regulatory body, you're supposed to know this more than all of us here in this particular portfolio committee. And had it not been for a case that was raised to me in my office 
uh, as a portfolio committee member that there's someone who is being re refused corrective surgery when countries like Scotland and Australia are doing free corrective surgeries for victims uh, in regards to hernia and transvaginal mesh. And Sapra is saying that they do not know about any adverse effects in regards to surgical mesh raises eyebrows immensely because it is a known global fact. There's been so many studies, so many publications on the use of surgical mesh, especially transvaginal mesh, its effects on women's bodies. And the fact that it's still mainstreamed in South Africa and SAPRA is coming to this portfolio committee to tell us that they don't know about any adverse effects when they themselves are telling us that they have very strong relations with other health regulatory bodies across the globe who have flagged it and some have even banned the use of surgical mesh and transvaginal surgical mesh in their countries. But SAPRA does not know. No, please clarify this particular issue and also appraise us what then should be the next step. As a member of the portfolio committee, how then do we take on this particular issue because there are people who can't even be had who can't even have their surgical uh, corrective measures done because the NDOH is incapacitated to do so as per the previous case i was telling you about and i'm very very not happy with the response of sapra to just say that you don't have any information on adverse effects you as a regulatory body should have gone out and found these especially because there are publications on this particular issue how then do we trust you on other particular issues and other uh, uh, medical equipment and medical uh, medicines that have adverse effects if you don't know about surgical mesh when it's a global phenomenon. Yeah. Thank you, Chairperson. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, on that one, why don't we get the benefit of that to say, have we not, can't we call the Society of Surgeons in the country because the surgeons are the ones who are cutting. And as far as I could remember, uh, I, would, I would think that is a nice body to call to ask them, because if there's not been any complaint uh, of the use of that product by the users, because those are the end it, that is That can be an alternative route of going about this, but I'm asking this particular question to a South African health regulatory body in South Africa that is saying they don't know about the adverse effects of, of the use of surgical mesh when it is a global phenomenon and other health regulatory bodies have banned the use of, of surgical mesh and South Africa is unable to do corrective surgery to the victims of the use of hernia surgical mesh and transvaginal mesh. SAPRA cannot say they don't know about it. Not SAPRA. Okay. Okay, the answer for that. But then this afternoon, you can also raise with the minister to check with the Society of Surgeons in the country. What is their opinion on this matter? Thanks. Uh, Sapra, can you come back to those uh, questions posed by honorable members? Sure, I'm happy uh, to do so. I just want to indicate uh, on the comment made by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health is not a regulator. So, um, you know, they would put out their position, but, um, you know, the FDA would be the one that um, would then in the US be the one that communicates then their position so our equivalence would be the US um, FDA. And um, like you've seen in the country, you have SAPRA that has communicated its position on ivermectin, you have NEMLAC, you've got the Ministerial Advisory Committee, et cetera. So all the different uh, uh, bodies would communicate their position. And it's important that um, you know, our position as a regulator, as we've indicated, that is um, you know, then uh, uh, noted. Um, in terms of um, uh, outstanding data, um, as we've indicated, I mean, this is, we've got two applicants, right? 
So the first submission that we received um, was in February. The second submission that we received was in um, April. So as indicated, they can provide the data, but it's about the quality of that data. So we issue a query and the queries that we issue need to be responded to. We would then sit and analyze and say, is this adequately responded to? And if we're still not satisfied, we will go back and issue further queries. So there are numerous uh, rounds of queries that we would have with the different um, applicants. And again, it's about how satisfied we are about the data that they have provided us. Regarding um, the, the um, uh, surgical mesh, it is important that we understand um, point the of order, Jefferson. Point of order, Jefferson. I'm sorry. I'm very, very sorry. Point of order. Point of order, then. Uh, I, I asked a very peculiar question. What is this data that was outstanding? Can SAPRA appraise us on what this data was? And because now they are saying it was submitted, when was it submitted? This outstanding data that they had said over consistently that Sputnik has outstanding data that they have not received. Can they tell us what this data is, what it is, and when it was submitted and when the evaluation started? That's all I ask. It's a very peculiar and a cutthroat uh, a, a question. Just tell us what the data is, the date when it was submitted, and the evaluation process in regards to that. That's all I'm asking. Thanks. Can I come in, Chair? Yes, come so in. To you have noted in the presentation that we gave, right? I took you through in a lot of detail the type of data that we review across those um, that wheel. And I'm happy to share my slide again. We look yeah. at is the applicant licensed? The data refers to those six steps. To Sabra. But I'm yes. asking in relation to Sputnik, what was the outstanding data? Which and when was it submitted? When was it submitted? What is this data that was outstanding from Sputnik V? That's what I'm asking. Don't go back to the presentation. I've heard you and I, I respect what you have had to say, Sabra. I just want to know. What is this data from Sputnik that was outstanding that now you say has been submitted? And when was it submitted? What is that data? Is it the license? Don't go back to the present. Just tell me in regards to Sputnik, the data in relation to efficacy against the Delta variant, for example, was submitted on the 15th of July. The evaluation started on the 19th of July. That's what I'm asking. Okay, go straight to that, Dr. Sementia. I'm going to restate it, Chen. We look at safety, we look at efficacy, we look at quality. At a point, we can issue queries around all of these. Okay. So when it comes to Sputnik, there was data outstanding on all of these three matters. We would issue queries on efficacy. We can have anything between 10 and 20 queries. On safety, we can have a list of queries. On quality, we can similarly do so. So the applicants are familiar. Those who operate in the sector understand how we work. So you would get a list of queries from SAPRA along those three elements. And I will go back to the process because our aim is to educate the public. Our aim is that the public understands the detail that we go into as a regulator. So I'm going to take you back to that process that we followed. We have to look at the production. We had issued queries on that, that speaks to the GMP. So point number two, point number three on my slides. Okay, that's what we asked for. 
There's point number five that talks to safety and efficacy, and we issue queries on that. So responding doesn't mean we will be satisfied. Responding says, yes, regulator, you have asked us these questions. Here's our response. You review. Right. In terms of the dates, I, I don't have them at hand, and I'm happy if we get this question written to us, we will respond on the dates, but it's not something that I have um, on hand. Again, you make reference to Sputnik. When it comes to Sputnik, we've got two applicants. So again, I can't just give you, uh, um, you know, data just in general because both these applications are at different stages. I must also say that there are elements within every applicant that are confidential. So there's matters that we will not be able to disclose. You're more than happy to engage with the applicant themselves. They can disclose to you because what they share with us, they share with us understanding that the regulator will keep um, their matters confidential. As you've noted with Sputnik, we've got two applicants, and so we need to deal with them um, separately. I hope this is satisfactory. In terms of the um, surgical mesh, I mean, I, I, you are correct. I mean, there's been a lot um, that has um, developed in terms of what has transpired in other countries. But for us, it's important that we deal with the locus. As, as regulators, we, we, we work in our jurisdiction, right? And so for SAPRA, until we are at a point where we receive specific safety reports being provided to us, we can assess what's happening in, our, in other countries, which we've done. We can look at who are the manufacturers there. Is it exactly the same product? We then look at which products have been authorized. So there's not a single surgical mesh product. There are multiple products with multiple applicants. So in dealing with this matter, one has to get the specifics. And that's why my colleague said, until we get a concern being raised by us that, you know, here's this product that was used, it is by this manufacturer, and these are the effects, we then act because we know then which applicant we need to deal with. Because these products, as I say, there are multiple types of products and there are multiple applicants. And we have to ensure that as we, as we respond from a safety perspective, we have that level of detail. So yes, we are up to speed in terms of what's happening with these products. But again, it's important that um, we get the reports then um, being uh, uh, um, shared with us as SAPRA. And yes, we have to, and we will act as soon as um, we've got details on that. But uh, we're not saying we don't know. I'd like to correct that. We're not saying we don't know. We are aware of this matter. What we don't have is any specific reports that have been made to SAPRA in terms of any adverse effects that have been made, um, observed um, uh, by the users in South Africa. Thanks, Chair. Um, perhaps I could just come in, and um, I think it was Honourable Ishmael who asked the question about neutrality and doctors being banned from prescribing ivermectin. So when, when we talk about the role of the regulator um, being regulatory, um, and we talk about safety, quality, and efficacy, and the public interest has to influence us, um, it's, a very prescri it's prescribed in law what we do and it's very specific and it's very contained and it is about those indicators it's not about price it's not about um, popularity for a particular product it is a very specific scientific regulatory mandate that we actually by law cannot deviate from 
So when we talk about being independent and having a scientific view, that doesn't mean that the outcome is neutral. It doesn't mean that we look at things and then the outcome is neutral. We will then decide on the balance of the data given to us, whether it's safety data or quality data or efficacy data, we will then decide what the decision is, whether it's to register a vaccine or in the case of, of the question around safety of products, whether it's to withdraw products. And it will be driven by the data that's, that's made available to us. In the case of, um, of the ivermectin and doctors prescribing or not prescribing, that is not what SAPRA does. SAPRA says, is there a product that has been submitted for registration um, in this case, for COVID, it will be under some sort of emergency use. Uh, hello, MP, how are you? Uh, good, yourself? Uh, okay, thanks. That has been, um, that, has, that, that can be reviewed. Uh, Dr. Jacobs. Honorable Dr. Jacobs, we are greeting someone who's not in the platform. Please switch off. Thank you. So, so I was saying that in the case of... Um, uh, ivermectin, uh, we can only review what is submitted to the regulatory authority if we're talking about licensing a product uh, for use, for example, in our, in our hospitals as a treatment. If there is nothing submitted for the treatment of COVID and there has been nothing submitted, the regulator, there is nothing for the regulator to approve. And it was in that context that the regulator recognized that the situation with ivermectin, when we gave the Section 21 permit, was out of control. There was illegal importation. We didn't know what those products were. Some of them were certainly contaminated, which meant they were not safe. There was widespread use of veterinary products, which are designed for very, very large animals in terms of dosage. So that would mean that people would not be familiar in terms of humans as to what the dose was that was being administered. And that is why we gave the Section 21 permission to import human formulations and on a named patient basis for prescribers who believe that there might be benefit in offering ivermectin either for prevention or early treatment or advanced treatment, that those pres prescribers at their own responsibility can, can then do that. That was an attempt to actually create a safer environment where doctors under their own auspices can decide if they believe that there is sufficient data to allow this to happen. At the moment, if you look at the, uh, the decisions from SAPRA, from the NEMRC committee, from the Ministerial Advisory Committee, everyone is, is, has consensus. And that consensus is aligned with the World Health Organization that at the moment there is insufficient data to support indications for either prevention or for early or advanced treatment. And that what is needed are better and well-designed clinical trials. And the extension and the invitation is still there from SAPRA to say we will fast-track, as we've done for all of other COVID studies, any applications for studies or any applications for um, emergency review for licensure of, of products. But so far, neither have been forthcoming. Thank you. We think there has been some sufficient follow-up answering. Uh, if honorable members, you feel that there has not been adequate responses, you are feel, we must feel free to write uh, and they will answer back in terms of, I mean, in terms of other questions that may still be uh, recurring. But we'd like to take the- Dr. Chair, 
sorry to trouble you, Chair. I've had my hand up for a while on, on, on that follow-up, but uh, I don't know what went wrong. Yeah, Honorable Mayor, you were the one who had asked questions. I mean, look, uh, we gave you a space first for asking questions when you came late. Now you are coming back again. When I, I did even ask on this platform, I'm recognizing Honorable Chirwa, I'm recognizing Honorable Ismail. Any other member or not, there was no call. There was no call. But it's fine, it's fine, Chair. You can call it off. I don't have a problem. We never get justice in this department, so let's leave it like that. Let me not waste my time, effort, and energy. Thank you very much, sir. I won't no. want to argue about it. I respect your decision. No, I'm not cutting you off. I'm just saying I did make a call uh, to say if there's any other member when they ask for follow-up, do make a follow-up, please. We still have time before uh, we get into the next meeting. I, I don't know what went wrong. I put my hand up, I raised the hand. But anyway, thank you for that. Yeah, I asked a question and I still didn't get the answer. My question is, I'm going to rephrase it. I'm not going to ask why. Now I'm going to tell you. You allowed the procurement of vaccines in this country before you even received a Section 21 application and before you actually approved it, but you claim to be independent. You were not consistent. You are not telling us the truth. Can you now tell us why did you allow vaccines to be brought into the country without or originally or in the very beginning looking into it, approving it, getting the application, registering it, and then you did not do that. Now tell us why you did not do that. Because I'm concerned about your independence. Yes, uh, it's a, it's a follow-up of a question that was uh, put before this meeting. Can you come back to Tasemende? Thank you, Chair. Um... And I'd like to get more specifics because we definitely have not operated like that. Um, all the vaccines that have been procured have been authorized um, by Safran. Um, we indicated in our presentation, and I'll go back to the presentation because that's the tool we utilize to give the members feedback, that the first um, authorization we made was after Section 21 um, for AstraZeneca wherein the applicant was the Department of Health. Then the subsequent two were Pfizer, um, the Janssen vaccine, and now the Sinovac um, vaccine. And so we've been very consistent. We've been very clear that our role as a regulator is to ensure that um, you know, the products that come through, we assess them without any bias, any influence, whether they will be procured or not. We do not concern ourselves with that. We receive every single application that um, we receive. In terms of procurement, uh, wherein the Department of Health has procured, I can confirm that they've procured vaccines that have um, SAPRA authorization. So I just need clarity from the member, please. Can I come in, Chair? Yeah, because... Uh, I think we need to separate issues there, Honorable, Ishmael, uh, Honorable Imam Sheikh. The procurement is not by them, it's somewhere else. They do the authorization and registration. Can, can I come in there quickly, Chair? I don't want to delay unnecessarily. You come in a little for the last time. Okay. If it's not clear, you write back to okay. them, they'll write back to you. Yes, Chair. Now, thank you. 
we are now being misled again by SEPRA. Chairperson, we're talking about the AstraZeneca. The minister had admitted that. All of us in this committee is aware that when the vaccines were procured, it had not, even the Section 21 application was not done. We brought this up 20 times or 30 times already. That it was the not even the Section 21 application was done, no registration, no authority, nothing. The vaccines were done and the minister agreed and the minister told us in this committee that he's going to do it and he did it whilst the stuff was already on its way arriving in South Africa. That's the question I'm asking. And Sepra knows what I'm talking about because 20 times before they didn't answer this question. But okay, I'll rephrase it. Will Sepra be willing to resign if we prove to them that what they're telling us if they're misleading us? I'd rather put it that way to the question. Thank you. Um, Chair, I take that the question is a procurement uh, question. Um, as we said, we don't get involved in procurement. Um, we, we authorize vaccines, how they get procured, who procures, we don't get involved in that. So um, yeah, I think the, the response that I've provided earlier um, still stands. I don't know if the board chair would like to assist me there. Thank you. Yes, I, I'm also hearing it as a procurement issue, but certainly in terms of the national rollout program, no uh, vaccines can be rolled out unless they have SAPRA approval, and, and, and that's an absolute given. But, but perhaps I just want to say something else, if I may. Um, and, and it's kind of two things I would like to say to the Parliamentary Portfolio Committee. I mean, I think this is a very robust debate, and we understand that people do have very differing views, and we must listen to those and respond. Um, but I, I just want to say two things. One is that that statutory bodies uh, for a democracy um, are incredibly important. The integrity of the statutory body, the reliability, and the view that the public has of that statutory body is absolutely essential. If the public doesn't have faith, in this case, in the regulatory body, and as I said earlier on, the public, I think, are beginning to understand much more about what SAPRA does than probably ever before and its importance. It's, it's incredibly important they, that they do have faith. And so it's important that we can answer your questions um, and that we answer your questions totally honestly. And if there are shortcomings that we recognize them, um, and if we need to, to have written questions and we come back, for example, you know, the question on the surgical mesh, by all means, please submit those questions. But it's very, very important that our statutory bodies have integrity and are doing their job and really doing their job in this case, in the context of a pandemic. Now I'm the chair of the board. The board does not do the technical work that rests with the CEO, her staff and all the, the experts that advise. Um, but the, the board has ultimate oversight and the board is responsible for saying to the CEO, are you delivering? The board at the moment recognizes all the pressures that we have been under, but really recognizes that the, the CEO, the staff, and the experts that have advised have really worked incredibly hard and with great honesty um, to, to try and deliver. Did we get it all right? Quite possibly not. And we'll obviously keep looking at that and try to improve. Um, but I think it's very, very important for Parliament to also feel confident that this regulatory body is, is serving its purpose. So for that reason, my second point is, I, I would, you know, with great respect, say, please can we be very, very careful when we start to um, really use words that are, uh, it might be great if you're a parliamentarian and you can 
take off your hat and you know really you know say things um, you know from from a political point of view. But it's quite difficult for a regulatory body uh, to necessarily respond. So so in terms of saying we're not telling you the truth, the one thing I will say to you is we are telling you the truth and we're telling the public the truth. And if we're not telling you the truth in any area, then we must come forward and say, actually, that was a mistake. We didn't tell you the truth and we will. So uh, I just want to say that uh, it's very important, A, that we do our jobs, B, that the board oversees the job that has been done by the CEO and colleagues, um, but see that we also are able to persuade Parliament and the Parliamentary Health Portfolio Committee that we are indeed a, a regulatory and a statutory body that is really, in the context of a pandemic, has, I, I believe, in my opinion, really been, I think, outstanding, not getting everything right, but has really tried to, to honour what the mandate is with a lot of uh, hard work and integrity. Thank you. Okay. Honourable members, uh, I would like to uh, put this uh, to a close and say uh, if there are any outstanding matters that indicated that members feel they have not been satisfied answered, are free to write and interact with the SAPAC. But I think let's give them the cue and not actually uh, give an impression that they may not be an integrity body. Uh, and if we do have certain reservations, let's write that to them. And I'm glad that Honorable uh, uh, Imam Sheikh was saying he has just received a letter, which he's going to look at and see if they have actually addressed some of the things that he had raised. We will continue interacting with SAPRA because they are a regulatory body and we are a portfolio committee of health. We need to just find space to each other to work uh, cordially because um, we can't wish each other away. We need each other. We need to continue engaging and need to provide. But I think, bottom line, I repeat this, there is science and there is emotions. Uh, when actually they are raising issues to say, but we could have saved so many people if we use this and that. That's why doctors have been given space, do this, but take accountability for it. Because as far as we are concerned, our level of accountability does not allow us to comment on the safety, efficacy, and quality. We are still battling to get that put together. So why should we say to them, please do compromise on that and move on and just give that? But I hear there's now a, a debate to, to compare ivermectin with vaccines. There's a new debate now that's coming through. Let's handle it in the way that... Uh, we are satisfied that um, we might not wish to like what they are saying on ivermectin, but that's what the science is guiding them to say. And uh, the issue of uh, vaccines, we will need to again to come back and update us, especially about those that are outstanding, because we still need to see the better, the, the more the better in terms of the number of vaccines so that we can reach this herd immunity quite faster. So honorable members, can we put this meeting to a close? and invite you to come back at five to six when we have a meeting with the Minister and the Department of Health uh, today. So you do have a long day. There's a break for now, honorable members. Thank you very much to Sapra. Uh, thanks to Professor Helen and Dr. Semente. If you do have your last closing comments, we'll give you one of your closing comments. Um, 
No, thank you. Thank you very much, um, Chair. I, I just want to appreciate um, the invitation and the opportunity for us to engage. We always welcome, um, you know, uh, these questions that are posed to us. We welcome the robust discussions. I think um, as uh, members of parliament, as the portfolio committee, you have to hold us accountable. Um, and we always appreciate these sessions. And, um, you know, if there are any questions, um, you know, that we haven't adequately spoken to, uh, please do write to us. We will um, try our best to respond to that. Chair, I also want to just uh, make a, a request that there is a complaint that we had laid. And um, in the spirit of this engagement, um, we would like to please get a response um, on that uh, complaint that we had laid. But overall, thank you very much, Chair. It was a very helpful session. Thank you. I don't know if the board chair maybe wants to comment. No, I, I would like to just reinforce Dr. Sumetti's um, appreciation. Um, it, it is robust and um, it, it, it has to be because in a pandemic, many things are happening very fast and um, the regulator has to keep up with them, but also has to take into account uh, you know, the, the, what the public health interest is in that context. So uh, please, and, and please write to us with any of your concerns because we will reply. Um, and uh, please raise any concerns about the functioning or specific issues, specific products. We'll be happy to do that. I think my last message though is in the context of the vaccines is just to really support the importance of getting these vaccines available, rolled out and to as many people as quickly as we possibly can. Um, and to support the NDOH efforts in this regard. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much for those closing comments. Honorable members, the meeting is adjourned until about five to six. Thank you very much. And bye-bye to SAPRA. Bye-bye, thank you. Recording stopped.